You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. I met Dennis Sizemore in 1995 at the Black Range Lodge, situated on the edge of the Gila Wilderness in New Mexico. It was the beginning of the Sky Island Wildland Network Design Project. I've always thought of Dennis as someone with the coolest job in the world. In 1991, he co-founded Round River Conservation Studies and has served as the organization's executive director since then. Nearing 30 years of operation, Round River has been responsible for varying degrees of protection and vastly greater understanding of millions of acres of wildlands and countless species who make their homes there. 30 years of undergrad students getting an experience of a lifetime while doing field work many said couldn't be done properly by undergrads all over the world. Today I talk with Dennis about his work with Round River, sharing local wine and kudu steak in the African bush with Michael Soule, and vital conservation efforts in many of the locations around the globe where Round River operates. You know, I started in 1991, and uh, we're looking forward to a rather large 30th anniversary party next year. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we we really started with the group of unlikely characters, I guess, uh, at least on the surface, you know, at our, we had our first meeting in the, oh, just north of Pagosa Springs, and uh, Douglas Peacock was there, and also Michael Soleil and, and some others, and, you know, we, we really just wanted to do, we had all worked in different kind of endeavors from the far spectrum of one end of activism to academic science, and really wanted to see if we could do something that might actually work, um, as well as something we could actually get paid for. And I had had some experience working with students before out in the wilds and different kind of things. And you know, I knew even then what an important thing that was, not only for the students' experience, but also just for oneself, just getting, just being around young people, and just getting uh, or rejuvenated by their desire to do um, and just <laughs> And just their overall enthusiasm. Mm. So we kind of put, we basically put together a research group with, you know, with indeed, you know, the idea of having young people come out and assist us and also helping to pay for the things. And you're all over the place now. Yeah, we just, yeah, we don't have a, we've not done much work in Asia. We're just, we just started some work in Mongolia a couple of years ago that we're hoping to expand next year. But uh, yeah, we've uh, got a wonderful project going on down in Chile now. We're starting some new work over in the Pantanal in Brazil. Um, and we're in Belize. Um, and then all over Western and Northern Canada. And then uh, we had some longstanding work in, oh, in Namibia. And then for the last eight years, we've been oh, in Botswana. We have a long-standing project on wolverines that we've been working on for about oh, eight, nine years now, primarily in Idaho, but also a little bit in Wyoming and also Montana. Uh, before COVID, there was 27 of us. There's 11 now. We're hoping to change that back, of course, as soon as we can. Not because you've lost anyone to COVID, just because the staffing. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
yeah, we we really took a hit on our student program. Um, well, talk talk they, more about the student program. Like, do you work with undergrads, grad students? Are there particular schools that you draw from? How does all of that work? The students listening to this will be very keen to understand how your program works. Yeah, we basically have, yeah we have usually around eight spring and fall and also summer programs. You know, they're basically semester they're you know semester in length or twelve basically twelve weeks. So the students would recognize it as a study abroad experience, and they basically sign up through us and then they're accredited and, and then our courses are accredited by Westminster College over here in Salt Lake City. Um, and they receive a full semester of credit for, for you know there are four to five different courses. There's academic lessons during the day and there's also field work. Um, and so they basically participate as field assistants. I mean when we started there was a lot of people saying that you know you really can't get undergraduates to do quote quality field work. And uh, that's proven to be bullshit. Um, hmm. You know, indeed, they, you know, indeed they can. They do. They do very, very well. And we've seen them work very, very hard for us. And and they provide a constant presence. They really have become a integral link for us, basically with the community. You know, we work with all these different communities around the world, and people like kids. You know, so that's become important. And then also with the, you know, and then they basically pay a tuition to us. And a portion of that goes into the project expenses. So as we ebb and flow with the different foundation support or other kinds of international donors, those student monies can indeed be constant again until this year. And then, you know, as I said earlier, it's become so important for our staff and myself. Um, I mean, I mean, this work can get depressing at times. And just sitting around a fire with some of the you know young people, they see, you know, you know, when I get down and start, you know, they basically just, you know, just say, well, let's get out of the way, old fart, let us do it. <laughs> um, and since we have, you know, we've had students now for since 1993, you know, we've had some students that have gone on to do some pretty remarkable things. What kind of work are we talking about? Oh, in Mongolia, the group there has to walk, ski or horseback into areas and basically spreading out camera traps and trying to get, you know, basically doing some basic, basic censuses you know what's there um they're also helping the communities um do whatever kind of really chores you know <laughs> that are there you know the groups down in chile they're basically moving in some moving through some country that's probably had very very few people actually walk in for many 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 years and they're just doing some basic surveys of what's in there and um and uh in particular there's an endangered deer down there called a Weimel that they're spending time trying to indeed locate. And and then also they're working with the local people that are assisting them. Then up in British Columbia, it's everything from salmon surveys, you know, grizzly bear hair collections to, uh, you know, just it's just basic, just basic field work. On the ground, get your hands dirty field yeah. work. And they're in the, you know, the room and board. Well, if they supply their own room, it's the tent they bring. <laughs> yeah and uh, you know and it's really it's really it, you know how many people do you know have spent 12 weeks you know basically in their tent or you know and their bag the um, impact must be incredible i bet that that they have stories that they've continued to tell the early students uh, to this day and intend to until the day they die i would imagine that would have made the one of the biggest impacts on their conservation early career yeah that's exactly right i mean jack i mean that's what we've really seen with 
what people have gone on to do and and not necessarily in the sciences or in or in, or in the work of conservation but just in whatever you know whatever employment or life they've kind of gone on to do that those experiences stay there with them you know it's hard to forget when you had to stay in your tent much longer than you wanted to because there were 16 elephants in camp <laughs> you had mentioned um about work that you're really excited about though you cannot get to uh, personally right now due to covid and travel restrictions in botswana i mean just like work here in the states almost everything has more commonalities than they do differences and you see that over and over and indeed in botswana you know we've been there about eight years now you know there's a recognition there that the okavango delta you know which is the world heritage site that has the highest density of elephants in the world probably has 50 percent of the african elephants remaining in the world um, has the highest density of large predators you know one of the lowest human population densities on the world oh except for mongolia i believe and yet it's in trouble you know it has so many things going going for it but the animal populations are in decline you know what it most goes back to is that that bigger system functioned because these large animals were able to move from place to place and you can point you know just like to the yellowstone ecosystem yellowstone park itself is not the whole um, and just right. the delta is not the whole of the greater Botswana system. And these large fences were built uh, beginning in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and on, primarily to stop, to, to stop what they said was the spread of the disease from wildlife to cattle. And so it's really about protecting the cattle and building up a cattle herds. And so we recognize that what's really needed is to get those fences down. And what it's going to take to open that country back up. And what's really evident in Botswana, like so many other places, is that if the local people, the local tribes that are there, if they're in favor of dropping that fence, you know, indeed the fence will come down. And what's occurred most most recently, there's a lot more rain actually occurring uh, in Angola, well, at least on a periodical basis. So the flooding of that delta greater. And the elephants are going further south, and they're moving into other areas. They're not going north um, as they once did because of all the, the heavy poaching. And so elephants are doing a really good job, actually, of knocking down a lot of these fences. So we really have to convince the communities to be strong with the government that they don't want to put those fences back up. The biggest driver in Botswana economically is diamonds. Uh, and number two is tourism. And most of that tourism is in northern Botswana around the Delta. But only a, uh, but the highest poverty in the nation is in northern Botswana. And so you have all these poor, poor communities that are dealing with large animals in the garden. And, you know, I've come to really respect the fact that they, you know, they are, they, you know, you know, my neighbors complain about the deer eating their flowers and they want, the, <laughs> you, know, they, you know, they want the state to come basically shoot some more deer. Or the coyotes eating their coyotes eating their cats, you know, you know. I mean, these are elephants and lions and leopards, and you know, they're. It's a substantial. <laughs> Maybe we should use some of your pictures that you and your students have taken to remind people how good they have it uh, back here in the states. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really the and then then on on a, on a daily basis, what it you know what it just takes for them to to be with that wildlife, but then also just to survive. 
you know, and basically try to grow their crops or their, you know, or their livestock. So unless they're unless they're deriving some benefit from those, you know, basically from that wildlife, they have a difficult time supporting that wildlife. We've begun the idea of starting a permanent conservation fund whereby we would assist communities to do different land plan efforts. And in exchange for them basically utilizing those land plans, they would be compensated uh, rather directly and or with school scholarships or whatever have you for them doing what's right for conservation, but also that they indeed can have a benefit. Well, all the tourism companies that are operating have, have a relationship with the community that they're most associated with because they have to lease land, right? But the revenue goes to that community, that sharing of revenue, whereas the community, you know, 10, 20 clicks away, basically receives nothing. But all that wildlife that those tourists are coming to see use the whole area. So we're talking to companies about the idea of, of all of them putting money into a common pot. And then basically utilizing our conservation science design for, for selecting areas of the highest priority for wildlife and also some of our social examinations for looking at poverty, need, and actual human-wildlife conflict to basically spread the wealth. And then by doing that, we can take the fences down or keep them down, open the country back up, you know, get the animals moving again. I mean, one of my biggest dreams is, you know, the Sinto Kalahari, it's very heavily fenced. It has the world's largest lions in it, you know, these 800-pound black-maned, incredible. You know, Peacock and I were there a year before last, having a wonderful little fire, having a kudu steak, and, and some wonderful pinotage wine from South Africa. And, you know, when the subadult lions leave that, you know, they, they basically go under the fence or after the elephants have made some holes, they can easily go, and it's mostly the subadults. And they're dead usually not too long after. And um, and just being able to open up that movement again, uh, this would be from the Kalahari to an area called the Oas the Boteti River, and you know to be able to move across that area. We know lions move as far away from was Zimbabwe into that area. It's going to take work. There's so many. There's a lot of people in between, and but relatively to here, or to, you know in the American West anyway, it's very very few people. You know I keep telling people you know if we can't succeed there that I don't know where we can succeed. And it could be an example of how to, you know, how to expand that to other places. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org, and don't forget to share it with friends. The idea of a conservation fund was, I mean, that's not new. Um, you know, we were part of the Great Bear work over in the central coast of British Columbia. And what really sealed that deal with the local communities and everybody else was that there was a very large pot put together, you know, and... Um, all the different communities that put lands into conservation benefited from putting lands into conservation. It's kind of nuts. I don't know uh, if you've seen this, but the arc that this show is taking in the last three episodes, yours included now, starts with episode 56, Kathleen Fitzgerald, um, who's on the Rewilding Leadership Council, and talking about raising money for African wildlife conservancies, what the effect of COVID, the pandemic has had on that because so many are 
so, so reliant on tourism dollars that are not coming in now. Uh, talking to her, and then in episode 57, talking to Paula Boulay uh, from Gorongosa National Park. And their funding situation and their rewilding situation being quite different, they do have, she talked a lot about the uh, the people and uh, having good relations with people in and around the park. A lot of people are in the park because of the uh, war uh, still to this day. Things have been carved out of it that just, we are here now. They were di- completely displaced. and But that place being one of the crown jewels of rewilding in the world, that they have enough space, that nobody would ever say they have enough space, but they have a lot of space. They have a lot of wildlife, huge herds. Um, they're still growing up. They're carnivores. They have plenty of room and food for more lions and uh, painted wolves, and and they're still... So and they're not as reliant on tourism dollars because they have uh, money focused in different ways coming to them from the country, from different countries around the world, studies. And now we circle completely to you in Botswana and the things that you're talking about, where, again, you have to pay so much attention to the people on the ground who make their living there, who who live there, and decisions that were made in maybe a knee-jerk fashion uh, as to the need for those fences um, without having all of the information or having the best plan that would necessitate in someone's mind, we need to just build a bunch of fences and cut off connectivity and, and cut ourselves off completely from the surroundings uh, which, of course, we know as rewilders doesn't work, not in nature and not in <laughs> human communities for very long. So it's just striking me right now how interesting it is to um, that these three episodes have fallen together like this. I had no idea we were going to talk about Botswana today. You know, I mentioned uh, oh, Kathleen. You know, so Kathleen's, you know, she's a large part of this project. Kathleen and I have kept in touch, you know, since I was on the Wildlands Board. You know, then we basically started talking and all that part about developing the fund and the find the fund for that, that's all Kathleen's brain behind that. I should have known. <laughs> well, you have to go to the best. I mean, if you're going to talk about doing stuff like this, I have learned quickly that Kathleen is the person that you should uh, want to get a hold of more than anyone else, I would think. <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of nice to keep circling back, you know, and, you know, particularly now with the, with the recent death of Michael Soleil. We all owe him so much. I mean, everything we keep gradually implementing, you know, he talked about, <laughs> you know, we just kind of, you know, we're still, we're still working through Michael's uh, what to do list and we have a, you know, we have, you know, we have much more to do for him, but that's the, you know, just every time I listen to anybody talking about key predators and keeping you know, all that kind of stuff, just, you know, it's Michael, you know, Michael was over there. Oh, he was in Namibia and also Botswana you know, with us a couple of times and just the sheer joy that he, you know, know, that he experienced over there. I'd bet Uh, there wasn't a single time you turned to him that he didn't have a big shit eating grin on his face. (laughs) He must have been in such heaven there. Just, I can only imagine him in what I would consider some of his natural habitat like that. I mean, and in such a big way, I mean, because everything is just so much bigger there the the sheer size of the animals which you talked about but then just everything just everything is you know coming to life out of his books out of his talks out of the things that he said were so important to um and you're right he's left us one hell of a to-do list and it's really good to talk to people like you and and your group and and others who are actually 
checking off the boxes. So, so many that there are, but still the work is being done. And that's really what we like to do here is, is to highlight that stuff. And it's really great that you remember, Michael, every time you hear those, I do too. I think all of us do. <laughs> there are thousands and thousands of people who could say the same thing when they hear certain key phrases. Well, we know who they belong to, right? Yeah. And he was so important just to bring different people together too, just different individuals. And he was, he was so capable of finding the best, the best to work together. I wonder how much of that had to do with, hey, if I get these two together, I'll get to go to Botswana. Or <laughs> I wonder how much of this had to, you know, do with his uh, life list, his bucket list to get to the most beautiful places that he's talked about and hadn't seen yet. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was communicating, I was talking to him just a couple of weeks before he died, and I was talking to him about trips, and he said, "I'm too old. I'm not going. For, you know, I'm too old for trips. Unless, <laughs> you know, unless you can arrange something in Namibia or Botswana again." <laughs> <laughs> wow. You've been doing the same kind of thing for quite a long time. Um, a lot of people move around to different organizations and do different things in the same span of time that you've been in the same place, working with the same types of folks, um, expanding all the time to different parts of the world and getting to see and, and do more things. But what do you feel like thus far in your legacy building? How's everything been going? I mean, can you even put it into words? That has been a wonderful ride. You know, I have a number of staff members that have been, you know, that have also been with Roundover over 20 years, uh, which doesn't happen that very often anymore either. They've either evolved, you know, in, in into different positions or, you know, they've, you know, permissively expanded from what they were originally hired to do. Um, our lead scientist, you know, Kimberly Heinemeyer, she was one of Michael's last students. Hmm. We hired her before she'd ever finished her PhD. And she's just grown with that. And, you know, I think so much... We've been very fortunate to, or I've been so fortunate to have such good people around me because I, I guess one thing I I do well as a director, I've always believed in hiring folks a whole lot smarter than me. You know, we have been successful. And I, I'm just looking back with, uh, you know, we've done over 100, 100 million acres of plans for different large areas. And we've, we have over 10 million acres that are locked into protection now. Strict, you know, strict protection. Mm. There's another 20 million on that that are probably, you know, that are in some kind of other kinds of designations, what do you want to call them? But they have some, you know, they have different levels of protection. All the relationships that we formed as an organization, but also myself personally with, you know, with some of the indigenous people. Close to, you know, one of my closest friends is the chairman of our board, and he's also the chief of the Tack River Klingit people. You know, I've been adopted by the Hiltzuk. <laughs> On the central coast um you know and just the you know just those kind of relationships with people that are really of this earth i used to kind of pawn the idea of native people and indigenous people had a had a different sense or a closer sense of the you know of the living world but i've come to i've come to i've come to recognize that indeed they do and we have so much to learn from that relationship, that relationship of that builds from being in a place for thousands of years. I guess the only fear I have really is that um, myself personally is that I, I you know, I, I just feel like we're beginning to learn how to put things together. <laughs> and just give me some more time, you know, give me another 20 years. I keep going back to Michael, but I remember Michael saying it's pretty similar. He could see. 
what needs to be done and just putting the right people to get it done and finding the you know then finding the resources to get it done you know i was a field biologist you know early on in, in my you know my career mostly what i do now is search for money which is not the most fun part of this job but then actually being able to be be a part of seeing how to spend those funds and actually put it together you know into a workable solution is indeed what is is what gets me up every morning you know it's kind of unfair that you only get about 80 or 100 years 100 <laughs> if you're lucky because and the thing that's beautiful about your organization and the kind of work that you do is that it's completely intertwined with the next generation coming up and they're going to learn the lesson too i'm sure that they've got to do the same thing that you've done is 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 get that next generation ready to come up and take your place that's the only way to actually extend our lifetimes out isn't it yeah yeah and indeed, I think that's where I mean, we'll, we'll, you know, back to this Botswana work as as an example. One of one of our lead researchers on that work now, you know, was a former student. Um, you know, as an undergraduate, she went to oh, in Namibia. Um, she went on to get a master's degree, and then she came to work for us as an instructor of student programs. And um, you know, now she's working, you know, now she's at Yale University working on her Ph.D. And um, this is Kagi Oric is her name. And Kagi, um, you know, and, and and her Ph.D. work is indeed working with these different communities that I mentioned in uh, Owen Botswana about how to limit their uh, uh, interactions with wildlife or, to, you know, to make it more of a coexistence rather than a conflict. Um, so that's, you know, that's, you know, indeed, that's part of that circle, you know, that is Round River, you know, and that makes my old heart feel good. <laughs> you've got your chunks that you've been working on um, toward this whole idea of either 30 by 30 or uh, 50 percent by 2030, depending on the organization and the ambitions that you're working with. How do you feel uh, about that as an organizing factor for rewilding the entire planet, oceans, lands, waters? Uh, everything. No, no, it's basically spot on. That's, that's, that's what we have to have. We need a goal, um, and we need a goal that actually, uh, you know, that that actually accomplishes something along the way. You know, you know, basically incrementally. I think it's so important just to have that common uh, common goal or voice. It's almost it's almost more about voice. I, you know, it was Dave Foreman. You know, when I was in school. Um, I mean, Dave was, you know, Dave talking about protecting the earth, you know, defending the earth um, and the whole um, and bringing people together, you know, that became the Wildlands Project um, and that there was a common vision. And I think what's happened now with this next, you know, is that 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 vision is just being expanded. I'm sure you remember the map that was always on Dave's refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, it basically showed how everything was going to get connected up. Um, and, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to put up a new map of them to see what, you know, I mean, there has been success. I, I, I think we forget sometimes. Um, and, and perhaps we're too hard on each other and always thinking we're in competition for whatever money or whatever else. But, you know, that, you know, just a recognition that, 
you know, there has been some accomplishments. Dave was just talking today about um, the massive amount of data that he has from both Rewilding North America, the first book, and uh, the Big Outside that he did with Howie Mm -hmm. Wolke. And all the data uh, is there. And he was just really, he was like, we need to, uh, we need to get back to that. But he's also getting back to that. He's in the very midst of doing battle with releasing Rewilding North America 2, around which we're going to base the entire rewilding campaign going forward for the foreseeable future, at least for the decade, um, to do our part to help people understand what North America looks like on that map. Now, with the success stories, a lot of revisions had to be made since 2004, uh, when I think that was the year or six, um, that uh, Rewilding North America first came out. He's he's going over that stuff and he's finding out what those things are. Um, and I think it will be surprising for a lot of people because um, we're always worried about what's happening right now. Whatever's on Twitter, whatever's going on with uh, climate change and, and everything, whatever's on the current 24 hours news cycle, I think conservationists are somewhat susceptible to that as well. And we forget so I think these reminders and the simple messaging, I mean, people don't need to know all the biology behind it, all the, all the technical science jargon or anything. Half just sounds good. Half just makes sense. And, <laughs> and I think that's why it's finally taking off as a message in a bigger way, because we found a way to simplify the message. We, the people don't need all of the background. They don't need to know what Sule knew in order to understand all of this stuff, that it's important at a gut level, and then they can get into it. If they want further reading, we know where to point them, right? You know, I see more and more with our students coming that there's a there's a growing, I mean, there's a growing ember within them that's more, it's, it's, I mean, it's, the fire is getting stoked. I mean, so many of our students are very, very well informed, you know, but we went through a period of time there several years where no one knew who Ed Abbey was mm. or or Dave Foreman or you know or 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 and now and you know now there's a resurgence that I'm seeing. Um and uh and I think perhaps this COVID this will just kind of stoke that even more. I was the chapter president I was a student chapter president of the Wildlife Society at Mexico State University. And um Part of my job was to get speakers every, you know, every month. And, you know, you'd get the fish biologists from the state. You'd get this, you know, whatever. You kind of, you know, kind of go down and use a list. I mean, well, I found this guy, you know, working for the Wilderness Society, named, you know, this guy named Dave Foreman, who was over in the Gila. <laughs> and, and I almost lost my position bringing in this fire brand up there talking about, you know, defending. And, you know, I just remember the Methodist preacher up there hollering at everybody. It was just, be- <laughs> it was, it, it was just beautiful, you know? And, um, that's, that's, you know, that's what we need more of. You don't know, Dave, if you haven't almost or completely gotten in trouble for knowing Dave, right? <laughs> like you're not really in his, in his circle. If, if you haven't had some, something directed at you at a public hearing or whatever, 
uh, some of the proudest moments of my life were being accused of hanging out with the likes of him and uh, by cowboys <laughs> and, and everybody else who want cattle on every square inch of open land that they can get them. So, yeah. Well, Dennis, this has been, I, we could go on. I hope the next time we see each other, it's around a campfire here on this continent or maybe somewhere in Africa. And we can reminisce and talk those old stories again. Maybe I'll record that if people would like to hear it here on Rewilding. That's good talk, good Jack. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.